You know, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. And it is a day that our nation, for the most part, pauses to celebrate the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Many of our schools, I think all of our schools, at least public schools, are closed. Many federal offices, if not all of them, are closed to commemorate the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And it was his life and his battle against segregation and the racism that permeated, especially the southern United States, but really the United States for different portions of our history. And during his life, he really rallied against that. He uh, helped to create or to lead these nonviolent protests in many major cities in Alabama and Georgia and across the southeast. He eventually uh, was, was most well known for the speech that he gave in Washington, D.C., I Have a Dream. And this nonviolent protester pastor was eventually killed, shot and killed outside of a hotel room. But it's the courage of his life that really enables him to rise above all the other historical figures that maybe we don't pause and celebrate. It's one of the things that kind of sets him apart. It's the courage that he possessed and the courage of the people that he led during those those marches, those sit-ins that they had and um, many of the things, if you studied his life in any way, you, you know that there was a courage about him to be able to stand against the, I'll call them the forces, but really the, the law of that day in many of those towns and the, the, the government officials even that were keeping a system alive that he was fighting against in nonviolent ways. And, and, and he had this incredible courage. And so tomorrow we pause to celebrate his life, the life that he led and the courage that he possessed. And, you know, when I think about the idea of courage, it stirs a lot of images in me. I don't know why, but when I think of the word courage, the first image in my head is always a fireman running into a burning building. I don't know why. I don't think anybody connected those images in my head and said, this is the definition of courage. I don't think it was anything like that. But every time I hear the word courage or think about courage, my initial image in my head is always that of a fireman or or, or a bunch of firemen running into a burning building. One of the greatest examples of this was obviously on September 11th, 2001 in New York City when, when, when different first responders were running into buildings that were literally falling down. We see courage in the midst of adversity. We see people that are saying there's something that has to be done and I'm going to do it even though there's, there's extreme danger or a, cost, a great cost to me. I'm going to do something courageous. And I don't know how you classify yourself. I don't know if you would classify yourself as someone who is courageous or who possesses courage. I think in different times in our life, we think we've done something that was a little courageous. I know, again, I, I reference my kids a lot. I don't think I'd have anything to preach about if I didn't have them. But, you know, my kids are getting older and... And I see a lot in them where they're developing courage. Our second son, Branson's the bravest kid we've got. Nothing scares him. And so if our four-year-old Tucker is afraid to go downstairs, like if the lights have already been turned off and he's afraid to go downstairs at night to get juice or to, he left a toy down there. He, you know, his blanket's called his taggy. And so he, if he left his taggy down there, he, he, he doesn't want to go by himself. And so we have learned, you know, we can be lazy. We'll say, just take Branson with you. He's brave, Right. Because Branson's not afraid of anything. Um, Not all of our children possess that same bravery and courage. 
But I ran across a lot of things related to courage as I was studying this this weekend. A couple of tweets that I saw that just happened to fall in line with this from from a couple of our staff guys. One of them said this, courage is being scared out of your mind and saddling up anyway. I don't know that those firemen think that way, but that's kind of what I envision them thinking as they come to another burning building. Where their life has to be put on the line to go in and save those who are trapped in this building. You know, courage is defined, if you want to look it up and and define it, Merriam-Webster defines it as the ability to do something that you know is difficult or even dangerous. And so today we're going to continue our series, Building a Life of Influence. We started this last week and we're going to continue for a couple weeks here as we start this new year trying to be people of influence. Trying to figure out how to build our lives and live our lives in such a way that we influence those who are right around us. And last week we started in Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah is a character and a book in the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, you can flip there with me because we're going to spend our time today in the first part of Nehemiah chapter 2. It's between the books of Ezra and Esther, the two E's. So you can find Nehemiah right in the middle there. But Nehemiah chapter 1 is the beginning of a story... About a man who we learned at the end of chapter 1 was the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. The cupbearer would have been the guy who taste tests everything that the king is going to drink. To make sure that the king is not going to drink anything that has poison or makes him sick, Nehemiah had to drink it first. And if he didn't die, the king could drink it. And so he's the cupbearer. But at the beginning of that chapter, what we determine is that he got some bad news. He got some news about Jerusalem, the city of the Jewish people who he was a part of. And so he got some bad news about what was happening. Jerusalem had lied in ruins and the people were in disarray. And I told you last week and I'll tell you again because we don't get to the end of the story again today. But I will tell you that Nehemiah eventually goes and rebuilds the walls in Jerusalem. That's important for you to know because this is not just a story that has no ending. This is a story that eventually culminates in success in Nehemiah's endeavor. He is going to go and rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. And so he he comes here to chapter 2, and we see that it's been a little time since Nehemiah got the news. And and we're going to see an interaction here between him and King Artaxerxes that I don't know that you and I can fully appreciate unless you've ever talked to an earthly king. Because there is some... There's some things that you do and there's some things you don't do when you talk to the king. And so we're going to see how Nehemiah responds here. Nehemiah chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. This is what it says. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then... I was very much afraid. Now, Nisan, the month that we're told here, is about 90 to 120 days after the month that he got the bad news. We were told in the previous chapter that the month that he was at the fortress with the king, for our calendar, if you kind of do the parallel and bring it over to our calendar now, that was like November to early December. And Nisan is sometime around March or April. And so we're talking about three to four months here that have passed since Nehemiah got the news 
And on this particular day, we don't know why this particular day he's sad and he hasn't been sad the other days. But this particular day, he comes into the presence of the king and his face is sad such that the king notices his sadness and asks him, why are you sad since you're not sick? Now, how would the king know that he's not sick? Because if he was sick, he would not be allowed to drink the things that the king was about to drink because we wouldn't be able to tell if it was just what he was already sick from or what he was drinking so that the king could be safe. So since he's not sick, the king knows, hey, he's in my presence. He's in good health, but I see sadness here. And the king rightly decides that this is a sadness in his heart. And and Nehemiah knew that if the king sees sadness in one of his servants, then you had reason to be afraid. Because the king could read that as displeasure with the king. The king could see sadness on your face and see that maybe you're displeased with or sad about the king. You were supposed to come in as this happy, jovial character. You know, not necessarily like the court jester all the time. That guy had his own, his own role, but you've got to come in in a good mood. You can't depress the king. And so the king sees sadness here and he asks Nehemiah what's going on. And when Nehemiah recognizes that the king sees sadness in him, he then is afraid. And the first thing that I would say today is courage is not a lack of fear. Courage does not imply a lack of fear. You can be afraid and still be courageous. I think a human emotion that we all possess is fear. And that's rightly so, right? When, when, when babies are born, they want to make them think they're being dropped so that they respond. There's a natural fear inclination in them that we need to see. Do they have that response? You know, I told you, my son Branson's kind of, he's brave, he's courageous, but there's things he's afraid of. But our other kids, they're automatically afraid of some things. And I think we all are. What's interesting to me is that it seems like most of us in our lives start out with fear. Some of us get rid of some of that fear, maybe later childhood. And then we develop a whole bunch of new fears as we get older. I think adults are often more afraid than children are. I don't know why that's the case. I think sometimes it's because of the things that we think we might lose if we do these things or the things that it might cost us. We have a greater sense and a greater understanding of what the total cost of us doing these things are, right? I want to go jump out of an airplane. I'd love to do that. If you've got a connection, hook me up. But it terrifies my wife because if I die... Like she understands the cost of that. I just think it's going to be a thrill ride. I think it's going to be awesome. But she sees there's a cost. She's afraid for me, right? But I just think there's, there's a greater sense of awareness as we grow older. And so sometimes we possess greater and greater fear than we even had when we were younger. But courage does not imply a lack of fear. So if you're afraid, don't automatically cross courageous off the list of attributes that you can possess. The next thing that I think is important for us is found here in verse three. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Now, remember, the king is asked, why are you sad? So Nehemiah kind of butters him up before he answers. He says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face be? Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me. What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Now, there's something, a couple things that are interesting here. Nehemiah never says the word Jerusalem. 
He doesn't say Jerusalem. He was told about Jerusalem. He's been praying about Jerusalem, but he doesn't say the word Jerusalem. He does that because Nehemiah understood just as he started his phrase, let the king live forever. He understood how to approach the king. He's a faithful servant of the king. He's interacted with him before. But Jerusalem was kind of a politically hot button issue. And just a few years prior to this, the king had already been approached about uh, building the walls of the city. And, and, and he'd said no. And so Nehemiah here is very careful not to present this as going and rebuilding Jerusalem as if he's wanting to create a new fortified city that might be the center or the hub of overthrowing King Artaxerxes or something like that. So he just says, hey, send me back to my city, the city where my ancestors are buried. The, the city where I'm from, the city that is a part of my lineage, the city that, that really makes me who I am. Send me there where my father's graves lie. He plays on that personal idea. This is not a political issue for me, King. This is something personal. It's easy to be more courageous when it affects you personally. This is something personal for Nehemiah. And so he asks the king for permission. Now, Again, this is something interesting with the, with, with the king and his interaction because you don't ask the king for anything. You don't have permission to request anything from the king. Now, the king gave him permission, and so he, he has the opportunity to explain why he's sad. But now, Nehemiah takes it a step further and says, here's why I'm sad. Why would I not be sad? Uh, listen, I, 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 need, I need to go. Will you please let me go? I mean, this is an incredibly courageous thing that he's asking here. And it doesn't, it doesn't escape me that right before he asks, he says a short prayer. Beginning, I believe it is, in, in the end of verse 4. The king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God in heaven. So we don't know how long that was. But I'm thinking it's probably just a really short kind of prayer. God help me here. Right before you take a math test. Students, can I get an amen? Right? Well, algebra, they took the numbers away, put letters. Now you're confused. So you're just like, God, help me with this. So you're just praying, God, I need your help, right? Now, here's what I think. And here's where I think a lot of us get in trouble. We're really good at praying the short prayers. We're really good at pleading for God's mercy in the moment right before we need it. But I think probably I'm inferring here, okay, I'm deducing, if that's the word. There were 90 days between him getting bad news and him approaching the king about this. I think what we learn in the remainder of this passage that we're going to read today is that Nehemiah didn't sit still for 90 days. I think he sought God. I think he thought through a plan. I think he asked God what am I supposed to do? I'm burdened by this. That's what we talked about last week. If you want to be a person of influence, it comes at the intersection of your natural burdens, your natural passions. There's a place that God has positioned you and there's a dependence on God that you must possess. And at the intersection of all of those things comes this place of influence for you and for me. And I think Nehemiah took maybe those 90 days. I don't know if it was every day. And I think somewhere in that devotion to God, he was probably praying. And so that short prayer was really built on big prayers. I think you and I are great at saying, God, help me on this test. God, I'm walking into a meeting. I need your help right here. God, I don't know what my boss just called me about, but I really need you to make sure this is a good meeting. God, the doctor just called. He wants me to come in. There's some things they want to talk about. I don't know what this means. Help me, God. 
God, I think the cop's behind me. I don't know if I just broke the law, but let him go chase after somebody else. (laughs) Right? We're really good at short prayers. I've only prayed that one time in my whole life, and I'm lying now. But we're really good at short prayers. I think the key for us is do we build short prayers on the top of big prayers? Do we have a life of prayer? If we want to be people of influence, if we want to be people of courage, I believe that it requires us, what we talked about last week, to have a posture, an understanding that I am fully dependent on God. And then if I have a moment here where I'm allowed to wait before I must act, when it's time to act, I want to be ready to go. I don't want to just pray short prayers. I want short prayers to be the culmination of my long prayers, my big prayers, my life of prayer, an ongoing conversation with the Father. I think that's really, really important to all of us. Verse 6 says this. The king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him. Now, that's important because when I first read that, I thought that was just kind of thrown in there. The queen would not have attended formal functions. So what this tells us is this is an informal moment. This is probably why Nehemiah was allowed to have some of the conversations that he's having here with the king. It also implies that Nehemiah had a place of of honor even among the servants of the king. And so Nehemiah has an opportunity in this informal setting to really be honest and authentic and transparent with the king about what it is he's feeling and what it is that he's wanting to do. And the king said to me, How long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Now, I would love here. You ever read the Bible and wish that they would have written it a little different way? I would love if the end of that last sentence said, so I told him I needed six months. Told him I needed two years. Told him I needed a month. Because I want to know how long did Nehemiah think it was going to take him to rebuild the wall? But what it does tell me, even the way it's written, is that in those 90 days, Nehemiah did develop a plan. Because when the king called on him, he knew exactly how long he needed. When the king says, okay, if I grant this to you, how long do you need to be gone? And Nehemiah gave him a time. Now, I don't know what time. I wish it said right there. That would be such good preaching. But I wish it said, but it doesn't. And so we just know that he had a plan. We just know that he was able to declare a set amount of time that he needed the king to excuse him from service so that he could go and rebuild the walls. So again, he wasn't sitting on his hands for those 90 days. Verse 7. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king. This is so interesting to me. I'm a dork. I know that. This is hilarious to me. He's already asked to be able to leave, which should have been where the conversation ended, except that Nehemiah, he's got some guts here. If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. Period. In that, you've asked too much, except there's not a period, there's a comma, and it keeps going. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. He's not even just talking about the wall anymore. He wants the king to build him a house. Okay, this is hilarious to me. And the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Okay. You're not supposed to ask the king. 
And yet Nehemiah, when the king gives him permission, says, can I go? Can I leave your service? And can I go and do this job to rebuild the city where the graves of my fathers lie? It's personal to me. I need to go accomplish this thing. The king says, how long will you be gone? He gives him a time. And then Nehemiah continues talking. Now, usually when I keep talking, when I should shut up, it costs me something, right? But Nehemiah says, if it pleases the king, as I leave, will you give me a letter so that I have safe passage from here to there? That no one would bother me because I am moving at your request. And would you also give me a letter so that when I'm traveling, I can take this letter to the guy that controls all the forest, all the woods, and say, hey, I need you to send me a bunch of trees so that we can rebuild the gates, rebuild the wall, and I'm going to set up a nice little shack for myself over in the corner, right? Nehemiah has the courage to ask. He has the courage to act. I think sometimes our fear paralyzes us. And we just barely ask for what we need. Now, here's, here's a parallel if we want to go back to prayer. Scripture tells us that in prayer, we have not because we ask not. Some of us pray timid prayers for a lot of reasons. We don't know how to pray bold prayers or we're afraid to pray bold prayers because we believe, and I'm just as guilty of this sometimes, we believe that if we pray a bold prayer and it goes unanswered, there's something wrong with us or the God that we're praying to, right? Somebody should have amen me right there. That was good stuff. And so what we do is we cower down from praying bold prayers to praying weak and timid prayers that we believe are assured to be answered because they are so general and so generic. So instead of saying with boldness, God, here's what I need. Fill in the blank. We say, God, give me what I need. Right? And there's nothing wrong with that in theory. But Mark Batterson's a pastor up in Washington, D.C. And, and I've said this several times before. I love this quote. But he says, God honors Bold prayers, because bold prayers honor God. God honors bold prayers because bold prayers honor God. It's the idea that if I'm not too afraid to ask God, then he knows that I am putting all trust in him to meet this need. It's what we just sang about. It's what we just prayed about. We're saying, God, I'm believing in you. Now, I referenced it. For those of you that already knew, you might have kind of jumped ahead in the story, but I referenced it when I was talking about the song Healer. I prayed and sang that song every single time while my mom had cancer. I believe your mom's healer. Guess what? Mom died. Does not change the conviction that I have that God is a healer. He didn't heal her the way I wanted him to. And this is not some pastor talk like I'm inhuman and don't have emotion. I cried, I cry, I miss her. I wanted her to live on earth. I wasn't praying, God, heal her to heaven. I was praying, God, heal her here. Keep her here. Let her watch me and my wife raise her grandchildren. I was praying that bold prayer. God, I'm believing you to touch her body. 
It didn't happen. But guess what? It does not change in my mind even one little bit that God is a healer. And, and I've said this, so if you've been around for a while, just tune me out for the next 30 seconds. If you ever read the Gospels in the New Testament, the stories of Jesus, Jesus did not heal every sick person he encountered. Ever thought about it? He didn't. He healed some. Does that mean he couldn't heal everyone? No. It means that his healing in that moment was not about the person he was healing. It was to demonstrate his power to do so. Because every person he healed in those moments of sickness eventually died of something else. It wasn't that they were healed for eternity of sickness and disease and dying. They were healed in a moment to demonstrate that he had the power to do so. So because he's demonstrated he has the power, just because this one doesn't go my way doesn't mean I quit praying bold prayers. So last Sunday, I stood right here and I said, we're going to pray for Connor Tosh. Rebecca and Jeremiah, members of our church and congregation, volunteer here in small groups here. They're a part of us. We're praying that little Connor, who was born last Saturday, whose lungs did not flush of fluid, who's going to the NICU, don't know when he's going to be able to go home. Mom and dad left the hospital on Monday and left little Connor there. Went back to visit. We went to visit them. We prayed for Connor and we prayed for every baby in that NICU at the request of his parents. And Friday morning, they got to take him home because God's a healer. Now, I know that you've probably walked through days where you, you've prayed bold prayers and it didn't turn out the way you wanted. And let me just tell you that the most courageous thing that you could do is continue to pray bold prayers. To continue to believe for the things that your individual situation didn't turn out like you wanted it to. Because what that does is that points a finger in the face of the enemy and says, I will not give up on my faith because it didn't happen like I wanted it to. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, those things that are unseen, the things I can't make sense of. I still trust in a God that I know has the power to do it. And Nehemiah stood before the king and was courageous and continued to ask he was bold. He said, if I'm going to accomplish this, I got to make sure I get there without getting killed. We're going to learn in just a minute. He had some opposition to what he was doing. He probably understood that through time with the Lord and just understanding the political climate of that day. And so he knew, King, I got to have a letter from you that says I can get from here to there and nobody's going to lay a finger on me. And not only that, when I get there, if I'm going to accomplish this, I need to have the supplies ready to go so the people can get to work. And I need you to send a letter it says I can have those supplies. When I get there, I got to have a place to live and so that I can kind of lead this effort. I can't be working on a house for me and a place to live while I'm trying to get everybody else to build the walls. And so I need you to help me do. And he's just bold. Guess what? The worst thing the king could have said was no. And yet Nehemiah trusted, according to the last verse that we just read, that it was the good hand of God upon him that would help him accomplish everything that he needed. Verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. We're going to come back to that because that's amazing. Verse 10. But when Sanballat and Haranite and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. The end of verse 9 says that not only did the king give Nehemiah everything he asked for, he gave him more than he asked for. He gave him a letter to the, to the king the king's on the way. 
the leaders of the province there. He gave him a letter to get all the supplies he needed. And then Nehemiah didn't even ask for it. But when he shows up, he's got armies. He's got, he's got uh, soldiers from the army, right? And he's got horsemen from King Artaxerxes' army to protect him and to help him in his travel. And I'm assuming to help him in this effort. Nehemiah didn't even ask for that. And yet the king gave that to him. So he granted everything that he needed and he granted him more. And the second thing that we see here is that immediately upon word getting out of what Nehemiah's plans are, there's opposition. We're going to talk again about opposition throughout the rest of this series. But here's what you have to know. If you're going to be a person of influence and you're going to be a person of courage, get ready for opposition. Get ready for opposition. If you're going to be the guy on the job to speak up when everybody else is just a yes man because you see something that's not right in the books, that's courageous. You will gain influence, either there or someone else, for taking a stand. But there will be opposition. If you're going to stand up and say that something's not right with the injustices going on around the world, there will be people that rally to that until you take them out of their comfort zone. There will be opposition. If you're going to be a person of courage, you're going to be a person of influence, there will be opposition to your efforts. And I want you to anticipate that. Here's some things that I notice about the story of Nehemiah here in chapter 2. Nehemiah didn't speak up right away. I mean, we found out that he learned this news and it was 90 days later before he said anything to the king. Some of us, we want to be so like a part of, of the solution that we run out in a hurry and we get all messed up, right? There's all kinds of examples in scripture. Moses was this anointed by God. He was going to set his people free. He ended up killing a guy. Not the plan, Right? Abraham, there's going to be a promised child, but you've got to wait for it. Nope, I'm in a hurry. We've got Mideast political strife for generations, thousands of years, because Abraham thought he knew how the plan was supposed to play out. My dad says the worst mistake he ever made was buying a car without sleeping on it, right? You just think, i got to make a decision now, and now I'm stuck with payments on a car that doesn't smell so good a week later when we've eaten fast food in it every day, and... It's not really that great a car, and that's kind of way too much money, and I got in a hurry, and this is going to cost me more than I thought. I don't know what your example is, but I think we're probably all guilty of making decisions in a hurry, acting in a hurry, running out in a hurry to be the solution. What we see here is that there was a big deal going on back in a place that Nehemiah's heart broke for, and yet his initial reaction was to wait. Second thing that I see is that when he spoke, he had a plan. While he was waiting, he wasn't just sitting on his hands. While he was waiting, he wasn't just waiting. He was preparing. He was getting ready to be in place when God needed him to move. Third thing I see is that he sought wisdom from God throughout that waiting period. And the fourth thing is that he was afraid, but he acted anyway. He was afraid. Remember, fear is not implying An absence of courage. And courage doesn't imply an absence of fear. These two things can coexist. I think your courage can be fueled somewhat by your fear. And here's just two things that I I wrote down that I think are key for me. I hope they are for you. Taking action isn't always the courageous thing. 
Taking action isn't always the courageous thing. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to frustrate some of you right here, and I totally apologize. That's not my intent. When really social hotbed issues happen in our culture, and the media jumps on it, and then it becomes this right-wing versus left-wing thing, Jumping on Facebook to declare why every person that disagrees with you is wrong is probably not the right move. I I think taking action isn't always the courageous thing. Maybe we need to pause and pray. Maybe there's a moment that we do need to speak out, but I'm not sure it's when the tempers are so high or we may lose the influence needed to create change among those who disagree with us. Taking action isn't always the courageous thing. And the second thing is that inaction doesn't always imply a lack of courage. Waiting, not acting immediately, doesn't mean that I'm not courageous. It may mean that I'm seeking God. It may mean that I'm seeking wisdom. It may mean that I'm waiting to hear God say, move. Inaction doesn't always imply a lack of courage. So how would we define courage? Courage, I believe, would be defined like this quote that I saw this week. Courage is doing what is right in every situation, regardless of the cost. Courage is not always about running into a building that's on fire. Courage is doing what's right in every situation, regardless of the cost. Sometimes it's hard to tell the truth, but courage says, even if it costs me something, I'm going to tell the truth. Sometimes it's hard to stand up, take a stand against somebody that's more powerful than you, that holds your future in their hand. Your employment rests on their decisions. Courage is doing what is right in every situation, regardless of the cost. And so I have three questions for you to ponder yourself today and as you kind of move through this week, as you try to determine, as you build a life of influence, if courage is a part of your makeup. As you look at who you are and what you're trying to become, what it is that God's trying to do in you, here's just three questions that only you can answer for yourself. Where do I lack courage? Where do I lack courage? If courage is doing what is right in every situation, regardless of the cost, am I courageous in every part of my life? Or am I only courageous at church? Am I only courageous at home? Am I only courageous at school? Am I only courageous on the job? Or am I not courageous at home? Am I not courageous at school? Am I not courageous on my job? If courage is doing what is right every time, no matter the cost, where do I lack courage in my life? What area of my life am I not courageous? Here's the second question. Where am I acting that I probably need to wait? Where am I acting that I need to wait? Where have I rushed in thinking that I'm the solution, I can fix it, that I've got to be active, that I've got to rush in and save the day, I've got to move first, I've got to be the first one there. Where am I active that I probably need to wait? 
third question is very much like that. Where am I waiting that I need to act? Because remember, inaction does not imply a lack of courage, but sometimes we use inactivity to disguise giving over to fear. We, we aren't courageous. And so instead of being courageous and waiting, we're just waiting because we're afraid. Where are you waiting right now that you need to act? You need to move. God's already said it. The plan's there. The burden's there. The passion's there. You're in the right place. You're dependent on God or you're trying to grow in that. And you need to move now. But you're waiting. Here's what Nehemiah said. He said that the king gave him everything he asked because the good hand of God was on him. And guess what? The good hand of God's on you too. God's not calling you to go somewhere that he's not going with you. That's that's what I love about the story of the children of Israel in the Old Testament. I know I'm jumping all over to a bunch of different scriptures today. The story of the children of Israel is they came out of captivity. They're moving towards the promised land. And Moses has died and Joshua has taken control. And God says to them right before they cross over the river into the promised land. Here's what God says to Joshua. He says, you get all the leaders to follow in behind the Ark of the Covenant when it goes across the river. Because you've never been this way before. He says, you're going to go across after I go across. And when I get in the land, you can come in the land. I mean, those people only were able to move when they saw the cloud or the fire of God move in the sky. They didn't move until God moved. Guess what? Some of you, you've been waiting. and God's saying it's time to go. So where do I lack courage? Where am I acting that I need to wait? And where am I waiting that I need to act? you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. Again, nobody can answer those questions about you but you. And so today as we close and we pray, I believe this is just the start of that internal conversation for you. This is not a stand and pray moment. This is not a lift your hand moment. This is an internal prayer between you and God to say, God, where do I lack courage? God, where am I acting that I need to wait? God, where am I waiting that I need to act? And I believe if you pray that prayer sincerely, that God will answer those questions. And then it's on you to be courageous and trust that God is with you and respond in kind. So we're going to pray. And I just encourage you as I pray to pray yourself asking those three questions. Begin the conversation with God so that he can grow your courage in you help you to become a person of influence. God, I thank you for every person in this room. I thank you for what you have accomplished today. Even the things that are unseen that we don't know yet. And so God, today I pray for every person in this room who is asking now where they lack courage, that God, you would show them that in their home, on their job, in their school, God, in the church, in the community, wherever it is that they live and do life, that God, if there's a place they lack courage, that you would illuminate that. You would show that now.
help them to fix it. God, for every person in this room right now who's asking the question, where am I acting that I need to wait? God, I pray that you would show them. Help them to see the places that they've jumped the gun, that you weren't ready for them to move. You needed them to wait. You needed them to seek counsel, seek wisdom, create a plan. And they jumped in. God, help them to be able to to, to clean up any mess that exists, to wait on you for the right timing, to trust you for that timing. God, I pray now for every person in this room who's asking, where am I act, Where am I waiting that I need to act? God, whether it's fear or indecision, God, whatever it is that is causing them to wait, they thought they heard from you, but now they know, they hear that still small voice from you that says go. God, let them have the courage and boldness to move now. God, we want to be a people of influence and we want to be courageous. Let us hear from you. Let us listen to your voice. Let us respond to you. And let us be people of influence. Because your hand is on us, guiding every step of the way. In Jesus' name we pray.